You know, every time we try to struggle with something technological, it can either really work well or be a disaster. You know, we had budget, I think. I mean, we don't have podcast budget, but I I could have probably said, hey, can we have like a hundred bucks and get some some microphones? They probably would have said yes. Yeah, but maybe. We're into a new year, so. Yeah, this will probably be the last or next to last. No, it'll be the next to last podcast before the end of the year. And then we'll have a whole new year, Easton's hundredth year, which is a pretty impressive thing. And we have a few things to talk years. about. Yeah, there's, uh, there's not, I mean, we've probably talked about this before and some of the other companies that are old, but yeah, there's not many hundred year old companies in the world. No, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the ones that are, are like Easton or they're family owned companies, right? They're not, they haven't been sold off to, uh, yeah. you know, uh, vulture, uh, capitalist, you know, whatever, vulture venture, capitalist. sorry, venture, <laughs> venture capitalist, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. I think that that does say something about the Easton family and their commitment to the sport, but it also says something about the nature of our industry. It's, uh, yeah. It, what, what does it say about the industry? <laughs> That that in some ways it hasn't gotten the attention of the big um, you know venture capitalist groups. The ones that have bought archery companies invariably so far has turned out to be pretty much disastrous, don't you think? I mean, I I mean I'm sure examples. there's I'm sure there's some that are you know successful, but I think they're successful. What I have seen with the companies that have been bought by large venture capitalist groups or private equity groups, what it seems they do is they come in and they, they scalp the company, you know, they, well, that's what I mean. They take what was a good or quality product and then they take it to their suppliers. And oftentimes they get cheapened. Oftentimes everything gets, it's no longer, it's a name only at that point. Well, yeah. I mean, look what happened to, I'll, I'll just say it. Look what happened to carbon express not even making a target arrow anymore and, and hardly making any other arrows. And, you know, at one time they were a worthy competitor, shall we say on some level. Yeah. When, when we did our full audit um, start of last year, you know, me and the engineers and Clint, we audited every arrow in the, in, in the market. Like we ordered them from a dealer so that they weren't, yeah, and we, and it, we did it anonymously so that we weren't getting any weird stuff. Yeah. Just whatever the dealer pulled off the shelf. And, and just so people know, we do the same thing with our own stuff. I mean, we'll, we we'll buy back stuff and test it and make sure that it meets the specs that we initially sent it out with to see right. what happens in the distribution chain. And, you know, sometimes that means that you need to improve your packaging. Sometimes it means that, uh, you know, everything's really good. But yeah, you know, you at see the end of the day, you've got to know. Right. We see it when it leaves the building and you know at that point it's past inspection but when we when we buy it when we do the buyback now we see it as the consumer would see it so right and we have ran into you know we did have the packaging problem with x10s for a little while where they were blowing through the ends of that and we found problems with it and things of that nature so it's good to do um but yeah when we did that test if, if i were i i told i you know i willingly told people i said if i weren't shooting an easton today i would shoot a carbon express 
And at that, I don't at that any, time, yeah. Yeah, I don't have any bones about saying that, but now I can't buy one. So, <laughs> well, yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, there's other arrows out there, but, um, you know, one of the things, one of the things that those audits do really is show you how some companies have no compunction about lying about specifications. Uh, it's a remarkable thing. Yeah. And you know what? I'll say, I'll say this when it comes to specifications. Again, there's a lot to aero construction and the materials involved, and then how a company tests them, right? Mm-hmm. And where, where, where a company tests them. You can move one inch up or down a, a shaft and get a much different straightness number. You know, so. Well, I mean, you know, there's there was an arrow. 20 years ago that used to advertise a specification 10 times tighter than anything in the industry. And it turns out they were measuring it over like a three inch span. So it all depends on how they, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Right. And then when companies say, you know, sorted, sorted to uh, blah, 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 spine tolerance. Well, if they need the number to hit 350 and at some point, when they rotate that shaft around, it eventually hits 350, but it goes from 330 to 380 while it's at it. Okay, yeah, it hit 350. Congrats, you know. But ideally, it's within 350, or very close to it the whole way around the shaft. Yeah, that's what you want. 360 yeah. degrees around the arrow, and and that's the kind of thing that makes the arrow harder to make, harder to make, and more expensive to make. Yeah, and and. and you know, it's one of the things that you guys really focus on pretty hard because you don't want to have somebody buying an arrow that can be 330 to 380 on the same arrow and have to clock it to find where it's 350 every time. Most people don't have spine gauges for one thing. And an awful lot of people don't even know that that's what's going on. So they see, you know, the grouping doesn't work out, especially laterally or out of a compound bow, even a vertical component because of spine differential. And they, you know, they, they figure there's something else going on because they trusted the number they saw on the arrow. So, and there's, you know. there's so much going on that there's so much to an arrow that sometimes a flaw can get covered up elsewhere. You know, you get it pointing left at one point and it points right at the other point and Hey, that works out. So <laughs> it, it's, we're in the weeds on this. We never meant to even discuss this, but um, it's fun when you, part of our quality check is to go and compare ourselves and, and we find out where we're lacking and we find out where everyone else is lacking and find out well, we're strong. And just to bring strong. it full circle, that's why Easton's been around a hundred years because that's the kind of stuff that mattered to Doug Easton and to Jim Easton and to Greg Easton. And because of things like that, the company has maintained its position over that century. And I think that that's, you know, to, to bring the story full, full circle, that's the kind of thing that matters. And that's the kind of reason why a company like that can be around for a century. So speaking of a, a bringing a story full circle, um, are you, you're involved in some regard with the, uh, the hundred year book. Is that right? In a peripheral way. I, I created an outline a few years ago for the elements and a lot of those have found their way into the book, but the book is being written by a professional author. And before we go any further with this, I'm George Techmanchov with Steve, the Big cat Anderson. This is Easton Podcast 158, Steve. 
Yeah, if they didn't know who we were by 158, then they got 157 times to figure it out. Hey, there could be people listening to this for the first time. I'll bet there's a few out there. I bet there are. Thanks and welcome. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. The book. So it's Easton's Century. And for several years now, of course, uh, you know, with this being a milestone, um, a number of things have been worked on to commemorate that, uh, that century of Easton. One of those things is a uh, book that's being produced that uh, a professional author is writing. It's going to have history, pictures, firsthand stories from many of the people involved over the years, um, reconstructions of, of the really early days. And at the end of the day, it will be the definitive Easton history book. And I think it's going to be a very interesting piece of work, but I'm an archery geek. And I'll bet most people listening to this podcast are to some degree archery geeks. And so everybody's going to want to have a copy of this book that, uh, that has an interest in the history of our sport. Now, uh, they haven't decided whether they're going to sell the thing or give a certain number away or whatever, but I do know that we are going to give some away here on the podcast when it is published this fall of 2022. And so we'll have copies and I'm going to see if we can get Greg to sign them to give away to listeners. What do you think of that? I think that'd be very cool. You know what we we talk about the archery library and and uh that's here in salt lake city at the easton center yeah it's got all this stuff in there and and very rarely does a company take the time to like lay out the history of the company and and we've done it in some fashion or another but there's there's a lot of stories you could tell and there's a lot of different ways you could go and and there's a lot of perspectives from people who were you know, say friends of Doug, friends of Jim, friends of Greg, and then people who were athletes, people who were production employees, people who worked in sales, marketing, whatever. Everyone has their own uh, recollection of the company and, and what it was and what it meant to them. And there's a lot you could put together on paper for that. Absolutely. And so that's exactly what's being done. And, you know, I think one of the things that really goes well with this uh, narrative is that it is a human story. It's a story of, of people, specifically Doug Easton, Jim Easton, and Greg, um, you know, and their American entrepreneurship. It's a, it's a pretty interesting um, story, regardless of whether you're an archery fan. If you're interested in business, it's the kind of thing you can get a lot from. But I'll, I'll say this. I think it will be the definitive company story for the first hundred years. And I think that people who are interested in the history of our sport will learn something from it, learn a lot of little nuggets that people don't know about. I will say this also, uh, the history podcasts that we've done have been among the more popular downloads. And so I think that there is a, a lot of people out there. There are a lot of people out there that kind of appreciate this sort of thing. You know, uh, we may even uh, make a series of history podcasts after the book comes out adapting some of the material. And uh, we have actual interviews with people who've been instrumental in the company over the years. We'll be dropping some of those into podcasts in the next few months so that you can uh, kind of get a flavor of where this is going to go. I think it's, it's really a fitting commemorative 
for a century of Easton. And I'm looking forward to seeing a copy myself pretty soon. Yeah, I guess we're, you know, eight months away, nine months away, thereabouts. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be cool to read. And it's, uh, I'm sure there's a lot that we've, that I've certainly never heard. And probably even some stuff that you've never heard just from, you know, an inside look from family members and things like that. Quite possible. So we'll see how. Uh, when, we'll, when did you start at Easton? 92 in the, uh, actually, sorry, 91 in, uh, in the fall of 91. Huh. So you've yeah. seen about a third of the company. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an accurate thing. I mean, I've been you involved with Easton since 83. I, you may say that uh, my involvement with Easton goes back to 83 because that's when I started getting stuff from the company. So, <laughs> Or, yeah, even when you started shooting, I guess you could say that's kind of when you started to have an idea of what the company was. and Sure. Not. Yeah. So. You know, by, by 87 or so, I was a fairly competitive shooter. So I was on the company's radar. I would get stabilizers and arrows from, uh, from Don Rabska. And, uh, you know, I, I started competing, uh, at a fairly high level. And so, you know, by the time that, uh, an opportunity came up to join the company, I was already, you know, shooting at a national and low international level and kind of that trajectory took me to, you know, world championships and without the company's support, I would never have done that. So I would say that, uh, my archery career and Easton have been lockstep for over 30 years. And um, I have a lot to thank them for on that, you know, but with that said, I think that this is going to be a very uh, interesting piece for everybody to, to get into. And in fact, uh, Steve, there is a email address that has been created for the purpose of people who might want to get an early reservation because it's this could be a limited edition book. I, I don't think they're going to print a ton of these. And so that email address, uh, I will go ahead and, and give out toward the end of the show so that people can uh, actually send in. I won't call it a reservation because, again, it hasn't been decided how the book will be distributed. But to signal that you'd like a place in line for a copy. Uh, I'll have that email address for you toward the end of the show. Yeah, that wasn't really, I don't, that wasn't really in the plans of this podcast. I don't even know why we started talking about that. Well, there weren't any plans for this podcast. How many podcasts have we actually sat down and said, Hey, Steve, this is what we're going to talk about. One, one tenth. <laughs> yes. 15.8 of them. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> It's, it's not that many. Uh, no, it's true. But what are we going to talk about? Is there anything? Yeah, there's a few about? things. Um, first off, this week, there, there will be the, uh, uh, shall we call it the, the potential for WA to, uh, I'll just come out and say it. I think they're going to reverse that 22nd slash 32nd rule that has created so much, um, shall we say interest, uh, you know, in terms of shooting times, I think that they didn't realize just how many people were going to be upset by that. So I yeah. think that, you know, in two days, they've got this, 
executive board meeting and it's a virtual meeting. And I think that they're going to, I, I honestly believe that they will decide to, they've already put it off till March. I think they're just going to make it go away, which they can do. I would like, I think everyone, is there anyone who doesn't want to see it go away? Well, I think there's a few people out there that think, you know, it doesn't make any difference to them, but I don't think there's anybody out there actively lobbying for the thing. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's probably some people who are extremely fast shooters who they go, well, I don't care because I don't Yeah, They'll still shoot extremely fast. It doesn't matter. Right. Like, but what deal. it does do is it, it it messes with people who might want a little more time between arrows. It just it stinks in a, in a lot of regards when you really buckle down and look at it. So I think for the best of everyone, and I'm a huge proponent of getting archery done, shooting as much as you can in as short of amount of time as you can, right? To within sure, reason, sure within reason. So. When when uh, when I really think about it, I'm like, yeah, let's just let's you know, I could I could spend an extra 12 minutes at the range. Yeah. Anyway, I really think that you know, if I had to put money on it, I would say they're probably going to make that thing go away, and that will solve everybody's agita over this proposal. You've been shooting some lately. I've I've seen you shooting uh, some on on the gram, and and uh, so how's that been going for you? How's prep for the season been going for you? Starting off, uh, you know, just starting off slow, not in any hurry to hit peak form yet because, you know. No, it's like anything else. You got to you gotta yeah. work up to it. You don't want to be burned out by February because that's when the, uh, that's when you really need it. Yeah, we're something like 65 days away from Vegas or whatever. So, well, you to know, get some stuff feeling good. Many- Many days in the past, we've talked about your process, right, for for getting ready for seasons. And it varies from season to season. But generally speaking, you don't want to peak too soon. Um, I think a lot of people have already started posting up those 330x Instagram posts. But, uh, you know, typically you don't do that. And um, I think that at the end of the day, it has served you well. Uh, Same process this year from your perspective? Um, yeah, yes and no. I, I, this year, I, when I really get going, I'm going to get going, right. I want to be at it and working on it a little more, um, probably gonna mess with my stuff a little more, which typically don't do. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those situations where my idea for the indoor season this year is to also be hundred percent built up and ready for outdoor season. So uh-huh. I want to, I want to spend time you know, not only shooting and prepping for indoor, but I want to have all my outdoor arrows built, all that stuff ready for world cup, 3d arrows, whatever. So that's kind of, it's kind of the direction I want to go. Um, it's weird right now. There, there's, there's like stuff you need, little, little things, you know, it just takes a long time to get them right now. So. Oh yeah. You mean <laughs> parts and stuff. Yep. That's the way it is. So. Yeah. It seems to me that uh, if you want to do your Christmas shopping and have it stuff delivered for Christmas, uh, you should have done it back in maybe October, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's, it's kind of the case right now with a lot of things and 
you know, we're we're in a from at an eastern standpoint from target archery, we seem to be in decent inventory position, but you know, when things get going, sometimes you don't realize, hey, we're out of this spine or that spine or whatever. And um, so I've been caught in that on some stuff, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, that that sort of thing, I mean, it's one thing to have it at the factory in Salt Lake City, it's quite another for it to make its way through the distribution channels, right? I mean, the stuff's got to make its way to Europe. It's got to make its way to Asia. Yeah. It's got to be delivered locally. And and that has been an issue. Um, even when Easton's cap- fully capable of producing the stuff, which, by the way, a lot of folks can't because they're reliant on factories in other places, um, it still has to make its way to, you know, Amsterdam and Berlin and Paris and Tokyo and Bangkok and all those places. And there's a lot of stuff in between that has to happen to make that happen. And anybody who's ordered anything from overseas understands that there are delays. So, yeah. And what's crazy is, you know, some little things can like hold up the whole system. So, right. You know, if we're getting, I mean, yeah, we make the arrows here, but some of the other stuff gets sourced elsewhere. And if we have a, you know, a piece of, like a metal item coming in say a belt belt buckle for a quiver for example stuff like that 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 stuff can get caught up in in the uh current situation and sit on a on a container ship somewhere and then you have other stuff like the other day i ordered a banner for a trade show for the medical tubing side of the company and i got that i ordered it from i had no idea where it was coming from right i ordered it off of a website and I got a shipping label from FedEx the next day, right? Hey, your shipment's coming. Came from India. I had it in like four days from the time I ordered it. They had to print it, ship it, all that. I'm like, what in the world? How can they do that? You know, and it's, I don't know. I guess just a different point of customs entry or something like that. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, who would have figured? I mean, it's a global economy. I get it. But who would have figured if you're ordering a banner online that it's actually being produced in India and being transferred to you, like you said, in four days? That's pretty amazing. So, yeah, there's there's uh, there's more than one way to skin the cat. And for sure, um, some of them are more time consuming than others. Of course, yeah. a, you know, a, a banner is one thing. It gets rolled up and put in a tube and probably thrown on a DHL jet and flown out. And maybe your timing was really good. That's yeah. what I'm wondering. You know, maybe they were just slow at the time. Yeah, but <laughs> that's know. not, that is not the norm, right? I mean, that's honestly, that's not the norm. So, right. And it's, uh, you know, the industry and every industry has, has attempted to go with, you know, lean manufacturing the last couple of years. And you, you look at that and you're like, I get the idea and the premise of lean manufacturing and it makes sense, but that's assuming that there's no other, there's no delays in receiving product in and things like that. And now oh, yeah. you're like, you know, it, maybe it'd be nice to be sitting on a pile of product and, you know, have a year's supply on hand rather than have just in time delivery on that stuff. Well, in, in terms of, having that be a regular thing. That's, that's not a good thing. Obviously you don't want to tie up that money, but who would have anticipated that we'd be going into the third year of all this sort of thing? You know, nobody that I know. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's kind of, at least we have a different perspective when we look at stuff as, as 
changes pop up and, and things like that. We all, you know, not to, I don't know, I don't want to beat the dead horse of, of COVID, but it's um, not really a dead horse anymore. But it's nice that we all have an, a little better understanding of, of the reaction that we need to have, right, instead of a knee jerk. Yeah, a little more balanced, a little more measured, a little more nuanced, yes. maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I'll just say it. We have high hopes that the Vegas shoot will come off this year in a more normal way. But the news of the past few days does give us a bit of pause. We'll have to see how things work out yeah. with international travel um, in particular. I, I, I still anticipate that we will have something closer to a normal Vegas shoot in terms of domestic attendance. But I'm a bit concerned right now about whether, you know, with the uh, latest news that we're seeing that we'll be able to continue to see prospects for international travel for that particular event. Uh, I think there will be international travel. I think it's going to be a few more hoops to go through potentially. Um, That's kind of how I see it. You know, I'm an optimist on that and I am hopeful that we don't have just these you know, huge, crazy restrictions that, you know, ultimately didn't uh, work out like they intended them to the first time around. Well, so. and that last part's key. I think we learned lessons from the relative ineffectiveness of some of that stuff. And I, you know, here's the thing. By the time you know that a new variant's out, it's already out and about anyway. So at yeah. a certain point, you just got to, you know, roll with the changes and deal with it. Yep. I think that we will see, you know, better, faster testing. And, and, uh, I think that will go a long way toward fixing issues of concern around a big event, like a Vegas shoot. Um, and we'll be talking to Bruce and Brittany soon about, uh, the latest, uh, the turnout has all the prospects of being right up there with pre pandemic times based upon reservations, based upon room, um, you know, reservations and interest and, and pre-registration for the event. That's really right on track with a normal Vegas shoot. So really that's yeah. surprising to me. Um, why is that? Why is that surprising? Um, I didn't think we would be back to those numbers yet, but I guess as at an indoor event in the winter, I, I think people are tired of uh, not tired being able being to do tired. this kind of thing. You know, Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and a reasonable way to put it new people doing it too and they want to go do it and sure you know yeah there's all those shiny new barebow rigs to to fling right <laughs> i uh i need a barebow rig sure it seems to me that uh one of the things that we need to do on this podcast today is answer a couple of more listener questions uh, and, I... and therefore give away a few more rx7 uh, or Axis half dozen Axis arrows. What do you think? Yeah, I I've got one picked to, out. If, uh, if you uh, if you don't, yeah, pick it out, and then we need to be. Uh, there was one we answered last time that I can't remember whose it was, and I wanted to. Uh, I'll remember. I wanted to get in touch with that person, and yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, that would be a good thing to do. So one of the uh, one of the questions that caught my eye comes from a fellow named Francis Parcheso. Francis is a guy in San Francisco, California. And he's asking a, a pretty good question, um, which I think is something that we can discuss a little bit. And that is, what are the fundamentals of archery form that are common to all the disciplines? 
And the more you think about the answer to that question, um, the more you realize we've got more in common in every category than not, in my opinion, Steve. Yeah. I so, I mean, my snap reaction to that is that the two that are really most important is having a strong bow arm and not collapsing with the release hand. That counts they, for everything. They, yeah. Yeah. And they kind of go hand in hand too. We can we can really make this as fundamental as you want. You can go all the way back to the old nine steps poster and you can see how it applies, how each one of the steps, right? You know the steps. No, I don't. Taught. What's the what's the nine steps poster? Uh let me see if I can remember here. It's uh you, you start out with stance, knocking, setup, um, pre-draw, then you draw, then you anchor, then you aim, then you release, then you follow through. That's the nine steps, right? They should have added a 10th step, aim, what? in the middle. Oh, aim's in there. I aim mentioned aim. But they Stance. didn't say in the middle. Oh, aim in the middle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, agreed. But, you know, um, those are common to every form of archery, except maybe, uh, you know, 1530s war bows where you're using it as artillery, right? <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? I probably have the year wrong, but you know what I'm saying? We're, we're talking about stance. Stance matters um, no matter what discipline you're in, right? Uh, your foot position, how you address the target, how you rotate the hips, uh, upper body, all that stuff. Whether you're shooting field archery, whether you're shooting 3D, whether you're shooting target, compound, recurve, bare bow, traditional bow, whatever, stance matters. Knocking, everybody's got to do it. Uh, there's no form of archery that doesn't involve knocking. Uh, setup, uh, well, everybody does it differently, but setup is part of the shot, right? Yeah, and you know, get your hand into the bow correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, get your fingers around the string correctly, or get your release aligned correctly. However, you want to talk about that. Yeah, I mean that's that's all. It, it's it's hard when you get to a certain level of archery. What I have found is when I'm struggling, I go back and identify where I'm struggling by looking at these things. Even though I didn't know what the nine steps were, you know, I'm going, what am I doing wrong here? And usually I can pick it apart and identify it and I know where I'm sucking. And, um, you know, when you mention them, you're like, oh, it seems seems rudimentary and then when you get to the, the top echelon of archery the rudimentary stuff becomes very important it's where it's where you win or lose yeah i mean you're already you know unconsciously competent at that stuff by that point but at the end of the day if any of those breaks down um even a little bit uh, it's going to make a difference in the shot and that's not what we want under pressure we want the shot to be the same so, you know, um, stance matters a ton. I mean, it is the basis of the shot. Um, it is really important to properly address the target, of course, because any twisting will actually, in some cases, change your draw length. Uh, you know, uh, it's even as fundamental as whether you have an open stance or a closed stance, right? I mean, that can make a big difference depending on your body build. But if you're not consistent with your stance, you're not going to be consistent with your shot. And that's the fundamental building block for the shot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was doing some, I actually went and did 
uh, I guess you'd call it coaching with some, some kids recently and the more advanced level kids, you know, one thing I showed them was how your stance can just a little change in that can have an effect on how you like naturally come down on the target. Right. And, and some people think, well, it changes your alignment or whatever, and you need to do this and look at the target. And I said, well, that's great and all, but that assumes that your target is placed directly in front of you, in front of your lane at every range. And it's not oftentimes they're, you know, your target might be six inches to the left, eight inches to the right. Yep. So I showed them how just shifting, you know, try to get the, the stance the same and you'll be able to feel that over time. But then one thing I do, if I find myself naturally coming down to the, you know, I draw the bow and I start to settle into the target and I find I, I naturally want to hang to the left. I'll shift my, I'll close my stance slightly. Exactly. That's slightly. Right. So that's a, that's, you know, for some kids you're trying to teach them, Hey, uh, you know, get your stance, don't shuffle your feet, put your feet in the same spot every time, you know, that type of thing. But that's once they get that then, and then they start to progress and things like that. Now you're, now you can fine tune stance to fine tune, the way that you will naturally want to move or miss when you're holding it full drop. Cause if you're drawn down and you naturally want to move, you're, you're always to the left of the target. I guarantee when you aim, your body's going to want to aim and move to the left. I can almost exactly. guarantee that. And it matters indoors in particular, in my opinion. I mean, let's say that yeah. you're shooting, you know, you're shooting Vegas and you're shooting a three spot. Hmm? I believe sincerely I know this sounds like voodoo, but I really believe that there can be a benefit to having a slightly adjusted stance between the left-hand target and the right-hand target on a three-spot for some it. people. Yeah, I was struggling on target three one year. So out in, I don't know why. Target three is the second arrow I shoot. I shoot one, three, two. So, you know, my thing is usually your, your third shot is your weakest if you were to put a load cell on and check how you actually shoot the bow. So I thought, all right, well, it's not my weakest shot. I can almost guarantee that. But for some reason, I'm just not putting down as tight of a hole on, on target two. So right. I just said, well, I'm going to shift my my foot, you know, and it's like a half inch movement, maybe. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, not much. And if it's placebo, I don't care. It's something, right? And right. if it... And it seemed to have cleaned things up. The next year I went in, I just kept doing what I always used to do, which is plant myself in the same spot. I didn't have a problem on target too, so I didn't worry about it. But, you know, yeah, I addressed something. It. Yeah, I addressed something and I fixed it by literally making the smallest of movements to either have a real effect or psychological effect. Don't know, don't care, doesn't matter. Now, in the case of a compound shooter, it can affect float. In the case of a recurve shooter, it can affect clicker timing. So yeah. it's something to pay attention to. Yeah. Float is like I was saying earlier, you know, if you find yourself always wanting to hold the left, maybe check your alignment as you're drawing down to the target. Right. So as opposed so, to, you know, yeah. sometimes you get a, if you get a horizontal component, you know, a, a lateral a sort of a diagonal drawdown, that can be absolutely a factor of your stance. Yeah. And there's, you know, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but because there's a million things, that's the one sure. that's the hard part about archery is identifying what is causing something. And yep. when you, when you get good at that, that's when the game can really open up to you because you can fix your problems pretty quickly. And 
when you can address those problems, like now you're, now you can, and you can see it almost instantly, like, okay, you know, that's, that's when it gets to be a lot more fun. Yes, for sure. When you're doing the same thing or sorry, when you're, when you're doing stuff differently, trying to figure out something and you get the same result over and over that it's, that's, that's hard. It's a struggle. It is. It's also supposedly the definition of insanity, right? Yeah. Well, archery, insanity, pretty much. Yeah. Well. <laughs> the, the, the pre-draw um, is an element of every, every shot. Um, you know, that's where you raise the bow up and you put your sight pin more or less somewhere in the vicinity of the target and you start to set your bow shoulder and you start, you know, at the same time, normally you start the draw. Now the pre-draw matters a lot for uh, a lot of compound shooters because of the nature of the rest, the nature of the interaction of the release, you know, sometimes you see pre-draws that are uh, a little high, shall we say the, the infamous sky draw, regardless of, of how it's done, the pre-draw needs to be pretty consistent uh, in most disciplines. You can get away with more with a recurve, I think. But when it comes to the pre-draw, I think that that sets the stage for, you know, the next step. I don't necessarily like separating pre-draw from draw because I think that they are done at the same time. We're not, yeah, we're not doing thing. one and then the other. It's one fluid motion. You know, I, yeah. I, like, I like the way Kudo uh, looks from a mental image. Uh, when it comes to the draw personally. And, and the same thing goes, you know, the, the, the sixth step is called anchor uh, traditionally, right? But, you know, anchor is a, is, a, is a problem because I think it creates a static idea in a lot of people's heads. I honestly think that even if you're shooting a compound bow, you're not fully static. I mean, yeah, you might be from a measurement standpoint, but you're active through the shot. That's my contention, Steve. What do you think? Um, as you, yeah, I think as you, I don't know how to say this. Hold on. Pause for a second. Sure. I'm not going to lie. I was answering Cody Krug's question. He, I was actually messaging him. He, we used his question at the, the last one, and I wanted to get on top of that before I forgot. So Yeah, yeah, smart. What were you talking about? <laughs> I'm going to leave this in the podcast. <laughs> I just, I just went through a long winded explanation of um, why I don't think you want to refer to anchor as a static thing, because I think you're oh, still very active yeah. while you're pulling through the shot. Okay. Ready. I'm ready to pick up. Yeah. Well, go ahead because I'm not editing this. All We're right. just going to keep it in. So <laughs> this is the, this is the, uh, this is the this underside is of the baseball mitt right here. Yeah, who cares? Whatever. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's not, it's certainly, your anchor certainly isn't a static thing. I mean, unless you're going to punch it, right? Right, right. Because right. <laughs> you've got to pull through it. So there's got to be some type of, there's got to be some type of movement there, at least within the hand or the wrist or something like that. And what I always tell people is like, well, my hand, tends to what I've tried to get it to do is elongate a little bit. So instead of as I as my hand elongates, the release wants to rotate. And the nice part is my index finger, which is that knuckle is kind of my anchor point against my jawline, right. that pretty much stays put. So right. acts but, as a fulcrum. Yeah. But uh yeah if you're sitting there static, 
very hard, you know, without without anything moving, it's very hard to to uh, get a shot to fire unless you punch it. And if you're shooting field archery, where your sight's moving up and down, your anchor has to adjust slightly as well. I mean, if you don't mm-hmm. believe me, go shoot a go shoot an arrow at ten yards and go shoot an arrow at hundred yards, and you're going to notice to see through your peep sight, your anchor had to float yeah. a bit. So now for a recurve shooter, you don't want to float the anchor too much. You want to uh, be consistent. So we do try to keep that upper part of the body um, as normal as we can. Otherwise you're, you're dealing with a timing issue on the clicker and that can be, and a that's why, problem. that's why you guys have weird cuts and stuff be- when you're shooting uphill because you don't have that peep sight to look through. Correct. So your anchor remains the same. So then your effective peep height would change at some point like brady told me how he has to cut for uphill shots and when we were shooting world field in cortina and it was he had it you know he'd figure it out pretty simplified but they don't get to go off you know uh archer's advantage cut chart and have it be anywhere close to accurate like what what i could do so yeah it's a it's a different game uh in that regard nevertheless uh Anchor is is one of those, and then of course aim. You know, and aiming is different for everybody. But now, uh, barebow aims. Let's just be blunt. You're using that arrow point. You're aiming. Oh yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It's really funny to me when people say that. Oh, they don't have a sight. I'm like, oh. unless you're unless you're doing a true <laughs> unless you're doing a true Fred Bear traditional shot, where it's more like throwing a ball. Yeah. Uh, you're aiming. Yeah. Instinctive and whatnot. And yeah, yeah, they, they aim, they have a sight tape effectively. Um, you know, and if that's a surprise to you as a barebow person, you might want to get in touch with some of the real high-end barebow shooters when they do a clinic. Heck, they basically got a clicker last week. WA rolled over and let them do a clicker basically. Yeah. What was that ruling? You, you kind of told me about that. Uh, a lot of guys have been using under the radar, a thumbnail clicker on their, on their tab or on their uh, shelf. And, uh, WA basically just threw up their hands and said, yeah, fine, go ahead. So what is it? Uh, you get to full draw and you push your thumbnail against the notch. And when your thumbnail slips into the notch, that's the same as a click and it goes. That's, I don't get it. I don't get it, but well, if, if you, if you tried it and gotten a bit of a freeze like some of these folks invariably will develop uh it's a very very useful tool i'll just leave it at that huh everybody's got a release whether you're using a mechanical release or you're using a uh, finger release your release is obviously an important part of the shot otherwise the arrow is not going anywhere so you know whatever form of archery you're shooting the release uh we're looking for consistency in how you manipulate that mechanical release or with fingers, uh, how you come off the string or how the string comes around your fingers really is what's going on. Uh, that matters. And then the last element is the follow through. And you know what? Everybody's got to do some follow through. Um, now, do we see consistent follow throughs from everybody? When we start getting into stuff like recurve or even some of the compound, you're, you're starting to see them try to snatch the pebble out of the hand. I mean, you're, you're seeing all sorts of interesting things, which is a manifestation of two things. One, what they saw at the moment the shot cut loose uh, versus what they wanted. And two, the arrow's so long gone by the time <laughs> you, know, you react to it that 
what you do with your follow through kind of sort of doesn't matter. But what the follow through is for me is the intentiveness of the shot. You know, if I have a good follow through with the shot, it actually is a manifestation of me doing the other stuff up front correctly. Right. Yeah. So, it showed you if, if your bow reacts the way you wanted it to, you knew that you had, you know, good bow arm, good release hand. Yeah. Everything worked or, out the way it was supposed to. Or at least you were happy about it mentally uh, and or visually so that you didn't feel the need to try to snatch the arrow back as it yeah. left the bow. You know? At our tournament uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I, held I made one shot that was so good. So good. I held the follow through for like 30 seconds afterwards. You know, the guys <laughs> next to me were like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, I'm just feeling this one. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Let it soak <laughs> in because that was a, that was a good shot. That was a good shot. And you want to keep those, you know, the subconscious cares about that stuff. Yeah. The next question comes from Mark Gruber. The question is for Teve Sanderson. <laughs> so first off, we know that Mark has a little bit of dyslexia. Shooting a 900 took a few years to happen with some late Sunday struggles. What preparations did you change from a mental standpoint that worked for you? If not mental prep, what was it that worked? I like that question. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, it's actually a good question, despite Mark trying to be funny guy. Um, I know Mark. I think it's funny. I, I, it's yeah. funny. I know Mark well. I beat him in golf pretty regularly. Um, I see. No, he, uh, Mark's a, I think he won Vegas in the amateur class one time. I know he shot a 900 as an amateur. I, well, I don't know that. I'm 99% sure of that. Uh, then he, he shot pro class for a while and uh, just, he's not really doing a whole lot of archery anymore. So he had been out of it at least a year or so. And then he came back as an amateur and he shot one of the, like the Midwest open or something. And he shoots like, I think he shot a 30 X the second day, you know, and a 59 X five spot or something like that. Anyhow, as an amateur, he had the highest score over all the pros and all that. And, you know, that caused uproar amongst people in the amateur division, but Mark's a pretty good shooter. Uh, we always joke with him at Vegas. He needs some knee braces because we could see him get going like a little shake in the legs that first couple ends, but he's been, he's been right there. He's had a look at a 900 in the pro class on day three and just hasn't quite had it. Um, and yeah, I've, my, the first time I shot a 600 and and made it to the third day still clean. I uh, ended up missing first arrow of my last end on day three. So my 88th arrow, I, I missed. And that sucked. Um, what preparations or how did I, what did I do mentally? Uh, really nothing, just kept going back, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of to be gained from just the experience of that and, and knowing what's going to come and, and knowing what to expect. So I, you know, I think the one thing I did change was I told myself not to get excited about the last end or whatever, just go and, and shoot it and be patient. If anything, slow down a little bit. And I think our fear in those last few ends is that, you know, we will have to let down because we're going to be shaken or whatever. And then you're going to get low on the clock or something like that. So your tendency is to want to speed up. You want to try to get shots off fast, which is exactly what happened the first time for me. I wanted to go and get shots off fast. First shot broke too fast. I missed the first arrow at the end. Right. So 
then you're standing there with a minute and 43 seconds on the clock going, well, I wish I'd taken my time. So I think I just, yeah, just learned to be patient and, and treat it like, you know, as best you can treat it like another end. It doesn't ever work that way. You know, I usually about the fourth end of the last day, I'm starting to feel that, but made it through three times now. So feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Um, and now, now what I, what I try to do is, you know, I'm not worried about making the shoot off cause I've done it before. So you, you know, you've done it. You're not trying to summit that mountain. You're just, you know, you know, if for the first time, I should say, you're not trying to do that for the first time. So you're just trying to get back there so you can give yourself another shot in the shoot off. And, and once you get in the shoot off, a lot of that feeling goes away. You're, you're a little more like, you know, it's, you've, you've accomplished the goal. And now you're there on house money. I'm not as qualified to answer the question in any way. Unlike Brady Ellison, I have not shot a 900 at Vegas with a recurve. But I will say that uh, the times when I've made achievements um, was when I was able to get my ego in check. You got to keep your ego in check. It's really important, I think. And I think one of the factors that you touched on a moment ago, Steve, I've made the shoot off. I've been there, done that is one of those things that helps with that. Because if your self-image requires being in the shoot-off as a part of that, then once you've done it, you can put it aside. Uh, you got to keep your ego in check and, and keep that 900 in perspective. And I think that that matters whether you want to shoot a, you know, a, a 1350 as a recurve shooter you know, an important score, or you want to shoot a, a 700 as a recurve shooter these days as a normal score, um, any of that stuff, you got to keep your ego in check. And I think for me personally, that did more for me than a lot of other stuff mentally from, yeah. from that perspective. And I'll, I'll tell all the kids coming up that are, you know, the young shooters that are getting pretty good is so many of them want to put it on social media and post this and post that or try to get a sponsor because they're shooting good and, and you know things like that and i mean that'll get you so far but it's the wrong get, focus in my yeah, opinion and when you get to a certain point now you're not shooting against like you know other young kids who are trying to get to the point where they're capable of shooting 300s regularly now you've got like jesse broadwater and chance bobeff on the line with you and They've been in that battle about, you know, 30 times between them. Like literally Chance has made the shoot off like 16 times or something. Oh yeah. It's so, a silly number of times. Yeah. Just consistent. Yeah. If <laughs> so. And one it a couple of times too. Yeah. When you look down the line and you're like, oh, you know, I want to, I want to make the shoot off. That'll make me cool. And you're like, oh, you know, there's a guy who's done it a billion times and, and I've got to try to compete with him. Right. That's <clears throat> that should be what you're looking at is not just make the shoot off so you can put it on Instagram, but make the shoot off. So you get a chance to compete with the guys like chance and Jesse and yeah. And that's and, how you and, win Vegas. I mean, and, and, and I'm going to say that, you know, chance and Jesse and guys like that are cool, you know, uh, not because they make the shoot off, but because of how they are because of the right. people they are. Right. They weren't worried about putting it on Facebook and telling everyone they shot a 30 X and whatnot. They no. were, they were worried about shooting as good as they possibly could. And by the way, this is not a new social media phenomenon. You know, before there was social media, heck, before there was uh, internet for average people, um, you know, 
there was the U.S. Archer. You know, the magazine, the U.S. Archer? Uh-huh. That used to be where you knew you made it <laughs> in social media terms. <laughs> if you were on the cover of that thing or if you were featured in an article in that thing, you were somebody, you know, from the standpoint of us, the great unwashed. If you saw somebody on the cover of the U.S. Archer, man, they must be they must be really good. <laughs> now, you know, uh, but that was, you know, that was Arlene Rohde deciding who was going to be on that cover. It was not somebody hitting, you know, uh, enter on an Instagram post. So, but even then, you know, even then there was some of that. Again, you got to keep your ego in check. Yeah. These, so, so people then were, they were shooting because they wanted to get all the, the hot sponsors and be on the cover of U.S. Archer. Just, just a few people like that. Yeah. You knew who they were, but, um, and, and the people that deserved it, that was not their main motivation. No. And that's how they ended up there. About telling you how good he is on Facebook. Yeah. Or, or back in that day, Terry Ragsdale, you think Terry Ragsdale had a motivation of, of being on the cover of the U.S. Archer? No, Terry and Michelle Ragsdale didn't care about being on the cover of the U.S. Archer. They cared about going to archery tournaments and hanging with their friends. And I mean, you can you can go back to our podcast and listen to it. Uh, that was not a motivation. It was the people who had that as a motivation that didn't succeed because they didn't keep their egos in check. Yep. So, yeah. Good so question. anyhow, Mark, here's here's what I say: go to go to that. Right, Vegas is a battle, so just keep going. Go a lot, and then eventually you won't be worried about being in the environment. There's one more question here that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna nominate as being eligible for a prize. It comes from Greg Anderson. Does this ring a bell? I don't know. I'm not related to anybody named Anderson. Uh huh. So anyway, this this fellow Greg Anderson says, "Do you use any non-archery gear while shooting? I.e., Linda Ochoa Anderson positive energy sticker." Ah. Hey, I think that Linda's stickers are a part of her gear. Yeah, it's definitely archery gear at this point. Absolutely. I'm seeing them in, uh, on a lot of shooters. Let me go, uh, let me find this Greg Anderson. Yeah, Once Anderson uh, was, a, was a name. I, yeah, I don't know anyone I'm related to named Anderson outside my immediate family. Right. Sure, somewhere there's somebody, but I don't. Really oh, I, 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 knew, I knew some Andersons when I was growing up in New York. Well, there's billions of Andersons, like literally billions, but. But you don't know any of them? Uh, yeah, because it was, it was, uh, it's not my dad's original last name, so. Oh, one of my best friends is, is uh, a guy who goes by Andy Anderson. So that was, my grandpa was Roy, as my dad's stepdad, and we his called him. Not, his name is not actually Andy Anderson, but he goes by Andy Anderson. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's in our family as well. So he's a, uh, he's an instructor for the U S department of energy security forces and uh, really wonderful human being. One of the nicest people I know. I got to shoot with him and his son uh, at the gunsight alumni shoot back in October. Nice. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, so do you, when you go to the gunsight alumni shoot, do you get nervous there? No, because I keep my ego in check. And, and also there. because most of the people are better than me. So <laughs> Yeah, you've been there a number of times, I assume. Yeah, my my top finish there was like 12th, you know. Were, I mean, the there's... first time, were you nervous? Were you like, uh, or just a little... No. I don't like to use the word nervous, but maybe just a little excited or whatever. Oh, yeah, for sure. Always, every time you every time you go to a, a place like that or go to a... I, I shoot USPSA matches and Steel Challenge matches. Nervous? No. Um, elevated sense of awareness? Yes, if that makes sense. 
Right. And I think that happens to everybody. Like if I were to go do that, well, sometimes I'll shoot sporting clays with my dad and right. I'll miss, I'll miss early on generally because I get, you know, same way, get a little excited and, uh, and that can happen. But, um, if I were to do that a lot, I assume I would stop caring about that. Right. Same, same as I'm saying with archery, like go jump in the fire as many times as you can. And all of a sudden these events get a whole lot easier and get comfortable with people around you. You know, a lot of people, I think they think this is the thing I was telling them. Nobody cares about you. Right. I've said this on the show many a times. People think that the people around them are paying attention to their score and judging them and things like that. And chances are they're probably not, you know, and if someone's having a rough day, I'd say most people are sympathetic to that. Not like, Oh man, this guy stinks, you know? The so, only archer I know who regularly gets that kind of attention is a Brady type guy, especially at that Vegas shoot where he shot that 900, right? Yeah. And everyone's watching, but, but he's used to that. Right. And he's, uh, he's doing it on, on the other end of the spectrum for new, new to tournament archery people. They're thinking this is going to be embarrassing. Whereas Brady's like, watch what I'm about to do, you know? Right. So uh, and all I got to say is, you know, you have no reason to be embarrassed. If you go and blow up and have a terrible, terrible day, so what? Like, you can come back the next time and do it again. And and once you get comfortable just with the people around you and, and understanding that the archery crowd is mostly pretty good people, you know, that makes it a lot easier to compete as well. Absolutely. I think that, uh, again, you know, keep your ego in check because you'll enjoy it more. And be there for the experience, not for reasons that, you know, at the end of the day, don't matter to other people. Yeah, the quite glory. frankly. Yeah, that's it. That's the word I was trying to get. And I think you, uh, you nailed it right there. Uh, Greg's got a couple more questions in here. What do you eat before a shoot? And is there anything you avoid at all cost? Um. I, I don't, you know, we're not running a marathon here, so I don't worry too much about it, but you don't want to, you know, have Taco Bell or something. And I've said that. Exact oh no. Line. I've said that exact <laughs> line on this podcast before. Hey, I, I'm not going to disagree. I, I agree with you hundred percent. Is there a Vegas shoot format that you prefer over others? Well, you know, what's been, I, I prefer the Vegas shoot format, right? And as it stands today. Yes. Yeah. And people have been going, oh, well, this format's cool. We should do it more. And I'm like, that format's cool because we only do it once per year. You're talking about stuff like Rob's 11 ring. Yes. And they, they did that at, at our local event here. And I thought, that, you know, that's great and all. If this tournament was the week before Lancaster, I would love doing it that way. But since most all of us here, in, at least on the West Coast, we're all preparing for the Vegas shoot, right? Like that's what our whole intent of every tournament early in the season is for. Yeah. And trust me, it's not just the West coast. Uh, A lot of, a lot of East coast folks make this their big trip of the year. Right. So we want to shoot Vegas rules where you're under the can't miss feeling. Right. Cause we shoot differently when, you know, like I'm not, I need to shoot a bunch of X's and I'm not, I'm not dead. If I shoot a nine. Yeah. Like WA. That's, 
yeah, it's the same there. So I, I prefer to shoot all local events under Vegas tournament rules, but a lot of people, and I don't know if it's just a preference of, of some people or preference of the amateur classes or whatever. Um, but they like shooting that X ring scoring and, and, uh, with, you know, Lancaster style with an 11, cause they don't like shooting X ring scoring when it's world archery style. Exactly. It's a different mentality there. Totally is. Yep. And I, I like to practice under that pressure of, of can't miss. And the last question from Greg is why is the Idaho open your favorite shoot? Oh yeah. I think, uh, maybe Greg's from Idaho. I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't remember ever saying it was my favorite tournament, <laughs> but, uh, it's fine. You know, it's fun. It's a fun one. Fair enough. Maybe. All right. Yeah. I, I don't, Idaho's great. Idaho's the best. I, I don't uh, disagree. I think Idaho is a wonderful place. I, uh, I like riding my motorcycle up there when the weather is nice. And uh, there's this golf club on the north side of Bear Lake that I uh, like to go to with my friends and have lunch. It's, uh, it's terrific. And there's that Mink Creek. Like Mink Creek time. is one of the most epic motorcycle roads in the country. So Idaho's got a lot going for it. Actually, Idaho sucks. Don't go there. It's full. Oh yeah, sorry. What was I saying? Yeah, and Utah. Utah's terrible too. Don't 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 visit Utah. It's awful. No, come to Utah. Move to Utah. I may be wanting to sell my house. It's very important. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important to me that people want to live in Utah. Well, trust me. If you decide to sell your house, you won't have any trouble whatsoever at the current. All right, no. Uh, not in the current climate. No. Um, all those folks moving from California and other places. Uh, Let's just say that uh, I'm starting to get a little bit of deja vu from my days in L.A. And we'll yeah. leave it at that. Yep. Especially around rush hour. Well, what's uh, what's that email for the the book? The email address for anybody that wants to try to reserve a copy of the book. And again, I'm just going to be upfront about this. We don't know if they're going to be sold or given away, but uh, we will give away a number of them on the podcast. But as far as the general distribution of the book, if you want a copy, it'd be a really good idea to throw your name in the ring. Yeah, I'd say um, this is a, it's more if you're interested, let them know by sending them an email. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and that, actually, that'll be helpful in terms of them having some idea of how many they need to print. Yes. So Easton, you know, just to recap, Easton is developing this limited edition 100-year anniversary book with photos and insider stories and the definitive company history, which is going to be released in the fall of 2022. So if you want to get in on the list for reservations, you want to email your name and contact to this email address, which I'm going to put in the show notes. The address is Easton100, E-A-S-T-O-N-100, at EastonMG, E-A-S-T-O-N-M-G dot com. That's Easton Management Group, um, the former Jazz D Easton company. And so um, Easton100 at EastonMG.com, just throw your name in there um, and they will account for you when it's time to publish and distribute that book in the fall of 2022. And uh, like I said, we're going to give away several copies signed by Greg um, here on the podcast. And also, folks, if you have any stories, personal stories that you'd like to tell 
about the Easton company or your personal experience with Easton, you can record them on your iPhone and send them to that same email address. And they will become part of the company history uh, that is being put together by Easton Corporate uh, for the purpose of uh, commemorating this 100th anniversary. So that's an open invitation. If you have a story to tell or just a congratulatory message recorded on your iPhone, you know, with your uh, front-facing camera or just audio, however you'd like, and send it to that same email address, easton100 at eastonmg.com, and it will go down in company history as part of the definitive 100 years of Easton. Pretty cool. Very cool. So, Steve, we're going to keep an eye open to see what happens with the 30-second rule. Uh, I, uh, As I said, I personally think, and Tom kind of hinted at this uh, without hinting at it, but I personally think we are going to see a um, substantial change, shall we say, potentially, to that new rule. Now, I could be wrong. They might decide to just go with it. Like I said, they've already pushed it off to March. But I have a feeling they're going to reverse it. What do you think? Um, well, yeah, I think they'll reverse it. And it's nice to know they've at least, you know, taken some opinion on it. Sure. Um, and if they reverse it, it'll be nice to know that they're not stuck in bureaucracy so hard that they, you know, can't be flexible to. Hey, they've been flexible before. Good. Otherwise, yeah. you'd still be shooting hit or miss at 50 meters. Yeah, and that's that's good. You want to have some flexibility uh, within game and and to do what's best for everyone. So. Yep, and I'm going to tell you right now, personally, uh, I know a lot of these folks. There's not one person on that executive board that has any interest other than what's best for the sport. Honestly. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's, that's no joke. I mean, they're, they're, every one of these people is a passionate archer and is committed to the sport. And uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. And I honestly believe that uh, uh, they'll do whatever the right thing is in their, you know, in their view. So I'm confident that that's going to be the case. They're smart folks, every one of them. And uh, we will see what happens. But I have a feeling, you know, like I said, I think we'll see this one go away. Excellent. Well, do we have anything else to talk about? Yeah, there's more stuff coming up, but I think we'll save it for the uh, pre-holiday podcast. What do you think? I got nothing to talk about, so I'll have to come up with some material between now and pre-holiday. Excellent. <laughs>